Welcome everybody to Spirituality Adventures. This is a non-judgmental place to explore spirituality, and we're so glad you're here. This is a viewer and listener supported podcast, so we greatly appreciate your support. If you're watching on YouTube, be sure and subscribe to my YouTube channel. Be sure and like, share, and subscribe to any of the social media content platforms that you're using. And then if you go to our website, spiritualityadventures.com, you can make a one-time donation or with a monthly subscription, you'll gain access to our bonus content. We greatly appreciate it. Thank you for tuning in. All right. Welcome everybody to Spirituality Adventures. We're so glad you're tuning in this time. Uh, This episode, I am so privileged, honored, and uh, grateful to be able to interview Frank Schaefer. And uh, for those who, of you who don't know f- that name, Frank Schaefer, um, Frank gr- grew up in a very famous uh, evangelical home. His dad was Francis Schaefer. He had founded a, uh, an evangelical community in Switzerland called Labrie. Uh, I came to Jesus in 1977, Frank, when I was 16. I was smoking weed and doing recreational drugs and got saved at a Southern Baptist youth camp that my dad made me go to. And I even snuck drugs to the youth camp because I didn't want to have anything to do with it, but ended up like giving my life to Jesus. And so I remember, you know, 77, 78, 79, you know, I started listening to Christian music. I started reading Christian books and I remember running across Francis Schaefer very early on in the late 70s, early 80s. So welcome to Spirituality Adventures. Thank you for for being here. Hey, my pleasure, genuinely speaking. And you started this out, I don't know what what time in your in this program you put it in, but you've been doing what, what did you call the questions? Your little pop quiz? Program? Yeah, we, we do bonus questions for some of our uh, supporters, you know? Okay. Well, you know what? Your, your listeners who haven't heard those bonus questions should jump in somehow and listen to them because I had more fun telling you what records I'm listening to books, reading my most embarrassing <laughs> moment, et cetera, et cetera. That was much better than whatever this interview is going to be. So the first thing I want to say to your regular listeners is whatever you have to do to get the bonus questions, you should go there because we had a lot of fun. That is fun stuff. Yeah. Thank you. So, um, Frank, you, you told me when we met, we had a zoom meeting through a common friend, Rod Colburn kind of connected. Rod's the one that wanted me to meet you and actually Brian McLaren too. And so, um, and then I met Samir when I went out to New York with Rod just last August. Mm -hmm. Um, but you recommended that I read, you're a writer and, uh, and you have, what, 20 something books that have been published? Yeah, so it depends where you draw the line. If you count the three or four or five books I wrote when I was in the evangelical world up until about 1986 or seven, then it's probably closing in on 20. If you count the books I've written in what, what I call actual, you know, the, the real world of writers, which I guess in the old days I would have called as a secular writer, then maybe it's a dozen or a little more than that. Okay. And also a painter. Yes, I am an artist and I jumped out of uh, painting very seriously and having art shows and doing things like that pretty precociously as a younger man. Um, when I made film series for my dad that made him much more famous and started the evangelical anti-abortion movement, et cetera, we can get into some of that. 
how should we then live and then whatever happened to the human race and then i kind of left it behind and came back to it about 20 years later at that point more for my own pleasure but i do still paint and the writing has been the way i've earned my living for the last 35 40 years so that's the sort of serious career part of my life um uh yeah so art and painting uh dipping into the film business for a while in hollywood after i had made those movies for my dad and then more recently doing a lot of commentating on politics from the point of view of a progressive activist i guess who comes from an evangelical background and gets asked by people like rachel maddow and and uh msnbc and others to kind of explain what's going on in that world since it's become so politicized in the trump era so it's kind of i guess if you divided my adult life into activities these days and that's not your question but i know at some point we'll go there so why not um and why not get there now um the first thing i do is a lot of child care for my three youngest grandchildren who live across the street from me i have five grandchildren the other two are grown and they come for long visits. But right now I'm helping with a 13-year-old, an 11-year-old, and an 8-year-old. Um, and that's what I kind of do. That's where my principal interest in life is, to be honest. Mm -hmm. It isn't in writing or podcasts or anything else. All these other things I do are peripheral to that. And then professionally, I'm a writer. I write these books, um, novels, I guess five novels or so. And then uh, literary nonfiction, is, as it's called, like my memoir, Crazy for God. And then... Um, some books you've read, as well as Portofino, the novel that I know you've read, and some other things. And then um, uh, the painting I do between books. I can't do two kinds of art at the same time. My mind is either in one or the other. Um, and then the speaking and the media stuff, sadly, has a political taint to it that I wish would go away, which is why I was so enjoying your 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 <laughs> pop quiz there, because, you know, I'm I'm. I thought Hillary Clinton would get elected and people would read my memoir about the rise of the religious right, kind of as an interesting thing, the way you go to natural history museums to look at dinosaurs. But then all of a sudden Trump got elected and everybody was calling and saying, uh, can you explain the rise of the white nationalist evangelical movement to us? Weren't you there at the beginning and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And then I spend my time talking all about a whole bunch of stuff that I'd rather not address. I'd much rather be asked about Portofino or my other books uh, that are not anything to do with current politics. But I guess you always have to kind of be where people see you. And there's no way to escape the fact that my family was instrumental in the rise of the religious right. And so I don't duck the questions, but I don't go looking for <laughs> opportunities to talk about it either. Yeah. So I, that's a long rambling crazy right. semi-biographical i won't even call it an answer but um flow of consciousness there take what you want from it right so i i've read now four of your books portofino crazy for god uh why i am an atheist who believes in god and then your most recent one fall in love have children stay put save the planet be happy hmm. and um i love your reading i love your writing i Thank thoroughly you. enjoyed reading all four of these books and i'm Thank you. i'm going to go back and <laughs> read the rest of the uh, calvin uh series. trilogy yeah, yeah. saving and, grandma and zermatt you still got to follow him uh, out i've got to follow him because i didn't want that book to end <laughs> when Good. i got to the end of it but at any rate but let's there's going to be some of our audience who doesn't know francis schaefer doesn't know you um right. i still have a lot of people from my you know, from that we're in my church that listen, check in, but I I've picked up a, a broader audience in that as well now sure. too, but um, give us the short 
version of growing up in Labrie with your famous yeah. evangelical dad. Yeah. Um, how you met Jeannie. I mean, I don't know if you can do this short, but um, I'll try uh, becoming the dad. And then particularly the your involvement in the development of the early days of the religious right. Because see, like yeah. I, the first time I voted, I was 18. I was Southern Baptist. I just stopped smoking pot and gotten saved and felt called to be a pastor. And I, the first time I voted was for Ronald Reagan. And I kind of yeah. grew up in the evangelical world that not realizing it, that you and your dad had kind of helped create. I was breathing that air, swimming in that yeah. water without even knowing that I was in it. Yeah. Right. Well, let me give you a thumbnail. And if I forget <laughs> some part of your question and get rambling into the weeds of my background, feel free to break in um, and, 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 and set it right uh, and pull me back into the questions you want answered. But let me just put it this way. You, you were talking about growing up with a famous evangelical father. Well, the first thing to know about my, I guess, childhood and youth is that it had three distinct stages. And the first of those stages was nothing to do with famous evangelical leaders, because when I was a child, I mean, a real child, not a teenager up till, you know, preschool age, the mission of Labrie Fellowship, which was founded in 1954-55 in Switzerland, was a breakaway mission that my parents founded when they got tired of the mission board they were working with out of the U.S. My mother and dad were totally unknown. We probably had meat on the table once every 10 or 15 days at the most. It was all casseroles, no car, no budget. Uh, one little house, a little chalet in Switzerland that my parents were running a ministry called Labrie that was really just their home open to university age students who would come for the weekend. The first ones invited by my sisters who were at the University of Lausanne in Switzerland, who would say to people, well, you want to come home on the weekend? They would meet this interesting American pastor who would answer spiritual questions. And out of that grew a place that was kind of mixture youth hostel uh, a, a few years later, hippie camp, uh, uh, commune. I grew up stepping over sleeping bags in the hallway. If I went down to the kitchen to get a glass of milk, say age eight or nine, strangers in the house all the time, no fire codes, probably 25, 30 people crammed into a house that today would not even be allowed to have dormitories. My mom cooking in the kitchen, big old casseroles and salads and giving Bible studies and talks to young women. My dad sitting at a dining room table answering questions. That's stage one of my childhood. Totally unknown parents. The people coming through are just ordinary university type students. As the 50s and 60s emerge and as so many young people around the world are on this kind of spiritual journey, after all, the Beatles are going to go to India and talk to the Maharishi. Everybody's hitchhiking around Europe with a copy of Europe on $5 a day from the States. Hey, here's a place you can crash for free. And uh, they no, no questions asked. Uh, most of the people there are not evangelicals or even particularly American Christians. It's English speaking, but lots of Europeans speak English, Dutch people, Germans. There's a lot of British people there. And that's kind of stage two. It's a big thing now, but still unknown. There's four or five houses. It's a faith work. My parents don't ask for money, but people find out about their needs and people visit and they love it and they, they send a check. Um, dad still doesn't have a secretary, no car, no, no sort of staff. It wouldn't be confused for a minute with big time American religion. Most, the, the, the most people there at any one time, maybe 20 or 30 people helping my parents as helpers and workers with maybe a hundred, 120 students. 
Then you have my dad writing a book called um, The God Who Is There and another one, Escape from Reason. And all of a sudden, uh, a bunch of Americans are reading his books and finding out about who's this guy, Francis Schaeffer, who's giving lectures on philosophy and art and history and, quote unquote, reaching the young people during the time of the big divide of the generation gap, Vietnam War and everything else. And then all of a sudden, people like Billy Graham show up. Literally, Billy Graham comes with his family and other evangelists. And that's kind of stage two. Francis and Edith Schaefer are discovered by a wider public, but it's only an evangelical public. And here's a big point. It's non-political. In other words, Francis Schaefer is known for bringing philosophical art history, cultural answers, and, and fitting them in with a biblical Christian worldview, kind of fundamentalist religion meets Bob Dylan, if I could put it that way. <laughs> and he's actually giving he's actually giving lectures on Bob Dylan and Woody Allen. And other evangelical leaders are starting to find out that here's this man who seems to be able to reach young people when no one else can. In fact, he's got long hair and looks like a hippie himself. He's wearing a beard. He's got mountain outfit on. People wandering around Labrie do not all look like the kind of folks burning Beatles albums in the South after they find out that John Lennon has said that they're more popular than Jesus. It's the exact opposite. If anything, <laughs> if you arrived at Labrie then, you would think it was a hippie commune, seriously. Yeah, yeah. And gay people are visiting. They're never thrown out. Um, kids come who have a drug problem and quite literally they're smoking drugs in the woods, shooting up heroin, and they're not thrown out because Francis Schaeffer believes in a real open home. So I, I want to emphasize he's known as a right wing leader to a lot of evangelicals now. But if they had tapped in then, let's call yeah. it 1968, 69, they would have said that he was running a hippie commune. It was immoral. There were not enough rules. Everybody there looked like a communist. Um, and that when you talk to him about the American evangelical community, he was really down on it, called it materialistic, said they had lost their sense of Christian values, et cetera. And then there's stage three when I, as a young filmmaker, um, and by the way, <laughs> before this, I've gotten Jeannie pregnant. She was visiting Labrie, not having any idea what it was, just wandered in. Um, and stayed and she and I became an item. And that's a whole nother story that we can go into, but I can't tangle it with this progression here. But dad uh, and I work on a film series called How Should We Then Live, which basically took one of his books, a new book at that time, turned it into an episodic film series, which then became a huge deal in the evangelical community. By then, everybody is learning who he is. But he's not a household name yet in the evangelical world. And that series made him one. It's on art, culture, philosophy, literature, a Christian worldview. We tour the country with in 23 cities, seminar tours, literally playing to audience, huge audiences, filling stadiums, um, the Grand Old Opry. This was in the uh, early 70s, right? And this is the early 70s. Yeah. And out of that comes the second series with another book, and this time with Sierra Coop, who at that time is Surgeon General, a Surgeon in Chief of Philadelphia Children's Hospital, and will become Ronald Reagan Surgeon General. And that is on the pro-life issues, right. abortion, infanticide, euthanasia. And then um, all of a sudden now we're involved in the whole culture war, the beginning of the pro-life movement and so on. Right. But I wanna add one footnote before we move on that will okay. surprise a lot of your listeners who just have to take it from me because I was there that I'm telling the truth on this. Um, the big surprise of the second series, which will surprise some of your listeners, was that when we went out with our anti-abortion film series with C. Everett Coop and my dad, Whatever Happened to Human Race in the book, 
we expected to fill the same stadiums we had three or four years before with the first film series on art, culture, philosophy, and theology. Mm-hmm. Instead, we were playing to empty venues because at that point, right after Roe v. Wade, evangelical leaders, including Billy Graham, the evangelist, Dr. Criswell, the president of the Southern Baptist Convention, you don't get any more conservative and fundamentalist and Bible-believing than that. Yeah. Also, he was the pastor of First Dallas First Baptist in Dallas. Also, he was the president of the Dallas Theological Seminary. Right. This guy came out as pro-choice and pro-Roe v. Wade, even preached a sermon on it using Bible verses to show that babies uh, only have souls after their first breath, whatever. Leaving aside that issue, the fact that surprising to people, they now look at abortion as a kind of an evangelical white Christian nationalist litmus test as if it had always been part of the package. Mm -hmm. It had not. The editorial board of Christianity Today magazine, Billy Graham's magazine, started. Billy Graham, Criswell, and many other people were either ambivalent or pro-choice. So actually what dad and I did, the first thing we did wasn't to start the quote pro-life movement with willing evangelicals. It was to talk any evangelicals at all into being at all interested in what they regarded as a Roman Catholic issue. Mm-hmm. So that needs to be said because it isn't said these days by very many people. And I'll tell you why. And then I know you have other questions, but let me just make this point. First of all, the the pro-choice left doesn't want to know that back in the day there were evangelicals, in fact, big evangelical leaders and most evangelical people to whom this wasn't a big deal because they want to demonize the whole movement as always having been reactionary Christian nationalists. It wasn't. Mm-hmm. Billy Graham refused to have segregated uh, rallies from 1952 on. Billy Graham was pro-choice. Billy Graham would not take part in the pro-life movement, even later as it developed, where his son is a right-wing leader who basically worked hard to get Donald Trump elected. So the funny thing is that the left and the right don't want to know because evangelicals don't want to admit they weren't always right-wing white nationalist activists for people like MAGA and Trump. They want they don't want to know that they have changed to the degree they have. Yeah. And back in the day, there were more evangelicals involved in, for instance, the civil rights movement than there were in something akin to the anti-gay pro-life movement today. They don't want to know that the left doesn't either because it doesn't fit their story about how bad evangelicals have always been. So I'll end there. But that's the point. And and in terms of how do I know this? Because for three meetings, I sat with Dr. Graham, Billy Graham, in the Mayo Clinic where he was for having a checkup. My dad was there for cancer treatments. We met three times to beg Billy to, to take some sort of a quote stand on the issue, and he won. We met with Dr. Criswell twice in Dallas because he had helped introduce dad in our first seminar series, but he says, I can't come on the platform and be associated with this anti-woman crusade of yours. Mm. So- there were right-wing conservative Christians who were pro-choice. People right. don't want to know about that. It's yeah. a point that you don't hear every day. But I was in the meetings. I'm not making it up. Right. Yeah. And I I honestly remember, you know, I would have considered myself probably more of a Billy Graham evangelical sure. than, I, than I would have. And then like Vineyard was birthed out of the Jesus movement. Like a friend of mine actually, you know, Bob Dylan actually had a, a little period of time where he like, Gave his life to Jesus in a vineyard church. And he did. And by the way, he's never rescinded that in the sense he's never said, oh, that was a mistake. He's just moved on and doesn't want to talk about it. 
Right. Well, the, the, the guy that the vineyard pastor that is still friends with Bob Dylan, they still meet together. Yeah. A friend of mine, the vineyard guy's a friend of mine. Well, and Jack Bob Sparks Dylan. came from Labrie. And then after he got back to San Francisco, he's baptizing hippies in swimming pools. And he's on the cover of Life magazine at, the, at what was then called the Jesus Movement. Yeah. 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 And Lonnie Frisbee was the guy, the gay young guy that looked like Jesus, who really was hugely influential in Vineyard Calvary Chapel and right. all of these early movements. Uh, right. It's a wonderful little uh, uh, documentary on his life called The Hippie Preacher that very few people have seen, but it's yeah, really a fascinating story. Now. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, at any rate, um, so you became disillusioned and I don't want to dive into this because I want to actually get into a couple of your books here and at, at, talk about some of your books. Okay. Sure. Um, but you became disillusioned with this uh, evangelical fundamental. Yeah. Right wing pro-life world yes. that you were, that you were very much a part of. Yes. Very much you and your dad helped even create that world to some yeah. extent, but yeah. through your influence. Yeah. Um, and you became disillusioned not only with the theology, but also the politics and also some of the hypocrisy. Yeah. Would that be accurate? Yeah. And I'll give you this will be a shorter answer. And again, it might surprise some people. You know, they're thinking, oh, well, did you walk away from your faith because you lost your faith and so forth? The re the these things don't happen overnight, but the process of walking away from and then in the end denouncing and then in the final analysis becoming, I guess you could say, a critic of known for my criticism of the evangelical right wing. This process did not begin with a rebellion about Christianity at all. In fact, it will surprise people perhaps to learn that the beginning of that process was comparing the humble, kind, Christ-like witness of my parents early days in the mission of debris and how they received all comers they were not judgmental they were kind and open to people my dad's interest in intellectual matters my dad's interest in philosophy art history i grew up as a homeschooled kid in this beautiful little mission and you know, we had our problems but it wasn't getting rich quick it wasn't nepotism. It wasn't money grubbing. It wasn't building an empire. And it certainly wasn't excluding people. And so the beginning of my journey out was because of my success in the big time American religion business. And the very, the very fact that I started to compare what my parents had taught was Christianity, this open, kind message of God's love for everyone. Um, and yes, a, a fundamentalist theology that I make, uh, that I write about in my novel Portofino, but it's not mean. It, it, it is simply that it was very narrow. But in terms of the way they treated people, nobody ever walked away from an encounter with Francis Nita Schaefer back in those days, thinking that they were anything less but loving and kind. Very different than encounters today with the evangelical right wing. I mean, there were no gay people out there saying they'd been rejected by Francis Schaeffer in the 1960s. There was nobody, no no unwed mother ever showed up at Labrie and found anything but kindness and love and helped keep her baby, whatever yeah. it may be. No judgment, nothing. So my, yeah. I began to compare that. So so essentially, that's where my journey away started. And then, of yeah. course, I after I got out of the community and began to know a wider world, Having been this homeschooled kid who finally went to a couple boarding schools um, later in my my education, 
um, it all began to fall apart just on the basis of evidence and philosophy and all the same questions that anybody else has who begins to reject a simplistic fundamentalist faith. But the process was when I began to realize that my parents' idea of ministry was such a minority compared to the big business aspect of American God business. Mm -hmm. And just to put it just bluntly, then we found ourselves in the big business end itself. And when we were filling venues, say with 25,000 people in Dallas, there was more money on our book table where we were making rapid copies of cassette tapes of the events and people were buying everything. There would have been more money at the end of one of our events, say on a Saturday evening, a wrap up of a Thursday, Friday, Saturday seminar. And I'm being literal, not making a comparison of 1970s dollars to today. I mean, actually more money on the book table than I made than I've made in any period since then in my lifetime. So we were very wow. successful. Yeah. And we and and the 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 movies cost a million and a half each to make, which today is like three million a picture. We were taking in millions of dollars to pay for these seminars with huge investments. We were flying around in a private plane lent to us by Jerry Falwell. This was the high end of the business. And then I was on the 700 Club with Pat Robertson and all these guys. They were building family empires in the case of Robertson actually became a billionaire, including owning diamond mines in South Africa. You know, this was not the world I was raised in. And it was discussed with who I was becoming in the context of comparing myself to my parents' humble beginnings that started a process out. And then, of course, once I started tugging at those threads, it all came away in my hand. And the battle for me was financial. I mean, how am I going to earn a living when this is all I know how to do? I've been raised in this nepotistic community. So that was the struggle. I'm married at this point with three little kids. What are we going to do? So that's a whole story I've written about in in some of my memoirs. You were talking about my books, but- Uh, that's an answer to getting out of that whole thing. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I would say, you know, when I started Vineyard in 1990 in Kansas City, my my heart would have been like your parents in the early days. I wanted to reach people outside the church. I wanted people to find this awesome Jesus. And we were we were welcoming to everybody. You yeah, know, we didn't turn any, you know, I had tons of single mom. I was welcoming to the gay community. You know, I was welcoming to every, I didn't care sure. where you've been or what you've done. I, yeah, that we were a grace based, those instincts of your early days, your parents would have been very much a big yeah. part of my heart and still are to this day. Right. But yeah. So Portofina, I loved reading Portofina, such a great, like, um, book. It's, it's, uh, it's a novel that you wrote about your childhood. Right. And Calvin's basically playing you. Yeah. And what was interesting to me is I found myself thinking all the way through it. What's what's actually real stories and what's actually fictionized? Because <laughs> I'm sure there's a little bit of both. But yes. um, but but it was fun because of the way as an adult, you kind of poked fun in a very loving way, I would say. Mm. of some of your fundamental evangelical heritage. Yes. One of the things I found amusing was, which, cause I grew up like this. Like if I, if I met a stranger, if I met anybody, if I mm-hmm. didn't introduce Jesus in the first one minute of the conversation, right. I felt like I'd let, let my, my evangelical duties down. Right. You know? Mm-hmm. And so you the way your mother, the way you depicted your mother who every time you had an encounter with anybody, she wanted you telling them about Jesus, you know? Yeah. And I thought that was, that was so true to the evangelism that evangelical world that I grew up in. And then the other one was the way you poked fun at, at our, 
our sexual shame based sort of, you know, the sexual. Right. So you had this kind of coming of age novel in this fundamentally evangelical world that is so I found myself laughing, crying, identifying with it Mm. and then not wanting it to end because you you still brought in this childhood nostalgia Mm. for for experiencing life through the eyes of a kid. Yeah. And by the way, as a, you're 70 now, is that right? Yeah. Just turned 70 I'm last 61. August. By the way, I still think you have that in you is that ability to see life through the eyes of a kid mm-hmm. because you not only did it yourself, but then you did it with your kids and now you do it with your grandkids. Yeah. And I, one of the things I love about you is it's almost like you've built your spirituality out of those relationships and seeing the world through those people's eyes. Yeah. And that's, it's so beautiful. So, yeah, so Portofina <laughs> was uh had to be fun a little bit for you to write i'm guessing i loved writing it and you know i would read a chapter out every time i finished it i was reading it to my wife Jeannie, and she she loved the book and you know it was one of those charmed things you know there have been books that have been easier and harder to write but portofino really wrote itself because the events that take place in the book are fictional but they're all in real places with people that are modeled on my own family so, you know, I had three sisters and in the book, Calvin Becker, the little boy has two sisters, but everything is real. Uh, the ev- the actual the events themselves are not real in that, you know, various things did not happen that that happened in the book, but things like it did. And they, I simplified the parents character a little bit. My parents had more of an intellectual sweep and interest than the parents in that book, Calvin parents, uh, you know, Elsa Becker and Ralph uh, are the names of the parents are less intellectually interesting than my parents were. But since I grew up in and around so many other fundamentalist Christian parents who I met, uh, it wasn't, it wasn't at all a stretch to, to make my, my own parents a little simpler in their views than they were a little stricter than they were a little more, uh, amusing. And then of course, for me, you know, the charm of Italy as a young boy growing up in this Calvinistic mission. And then all of a sudden here I am in the early 19, late 1950s, early sixties in, you know, what came to be known as La Dolce Vita, you know, the, the fantastic, beautiful Riviera, you know, was way above our pay grade. Um, but at the same time left an impression on me that is the, the, the height of a nostalgia for me. So not only do I love Italy still, but you know, even the smell of something or, you know, a, a lemon zest, you know, which I'm making in something I'm grating on food will suddenly take me back to to time there. So it was written from a heart of 100 percent love for my parents, even though I was making fun a little bit of our background as evangelical fundamentalist Christians, a thousand percent love for Italy and vacationing there as a child. And of course, Italy's perfect for a child because there are, there are all these wonderful Italian characters that you're getting to know and they're right. very welcoming and loving. So the book was written from a place of love and it was the easiest book I've ever written in that it really wrote itself. I made the incidents up as I went, but, um, and, and then the sequels did the same. Like Saving grandma takes the story now back to the Swiss mission for a while. And, and in Italy introduces a grandmother character based on my father's mother, who is a good old, fire-breathing pagan who arrived very late in life in her late 80s and 90s, really like a bird, you know, like a cat among the pigeons. I mean, really upset the apple cart in the mission because we were trying to save her, you know, and um, uh, so it's a very funny book because (laughs) you've got this very, very stroppy character 
in the middle. And then Zermatt takes the whole sexual theme out to the limit in the sense that now it follows him from 14 through 16 in his annual vacations to another wonderful place in Europe, which is the ski resort of Zermatt, where we also yeah. went for winter vacations. So it really follows my life. It's de- Calvin Becker's definitely me. And um, the story takes him, if you go from the beginning of Portofino through to the end of Zermatt from 11 through 16. So it is that whole coming of age period. The yeah. real Frank Schaefer at age 17 gets Jeannie pregnant, who's coming to visit Labrie um, with her sister, Pam. And Jeannie's on a on a Eurail uh, pass tour of Europe with her older sister, her sister's just graduated from Berkeley University. Jeannie's just graduated from high school. Their parents have let them loose in Europe to have a little sister thing. Ten years later, Jeannie comes back to the States, pregnant with the third child, with two little kids and a husband. So that high school graduation thing didn't quite work out as her parents planned. Um, and we're still together 53 years later. And, you know, you've read uh, Fall in Love, Have Children Stay Put you know, whatever it is, save the planet, be happy. So you get a little of that story in that and in my memoir. But um, just long story short, cutting about writing, you know, Jeannie's really been my muse. So when I write in Portofino about having a crush on this little girl, Mm -hmm. later on other things, it's always Jeannie in my head. So she's really in the story too, because I've had the privilege of being passionately in love with a young woman at a young age. And looking back on that and, and of course, had a crush on other girls and other experiences as a teen. But nevertheless, the the warmth I, I felt toward my parents, I hope, comes through the warmth I felt toward those childhood experiences for which I'm very grateful. And then, of course, you know, falling passionately and madly in love and a love that lasted through a lifetime. You know, so the character of Jennifer Baslington in the book kind of jumps off the page at me still because she didn't exist. But another little girl just a little older a couple of years later did and of course that shaped my whole my yeah. whole feeling so that kind of passion Beautiful. was real and well, i'm it, guessing a lot of people have gone to port uh, or wanted to find out where this place is at and go vacation uh, yeah, well, there after they read the book <laughs> yes and that part of italy is wonderful and um and nobody's going to be disappointed going to liguria and the cinque terra and portofino and the whole uh, you know, coast there is just, you know, it's one of the most beautiful spots on earth. Yeah. Um, I think, uh, so I remember when crazy God came out, I never, I didn't read it when it came out Yeah. because I remember the, like some of the, uh, unsophisticated, um, commentary on this yes. from the evangelical world was you were, you know, blasting your parents, you know? Yeah. Which isn't so, true by the way. Right. So now I read it. I'm reading Portofino and I'm reading crazy for God. And I'm thinking, I didn't feel that way at all. Like I thought like you honored your parents really well all the way through it while at the same time with a great sense of humor and some self-deprecation pointed out all the craziness of of our fundamental evangelical world, you know? Yeah. Well, I, it it was an interesting experience because of course, both of these books came out with big sec, what we would have called secular publishers. Mm -hmm. My, my editor was somewhat perplexed because he actually came to me. He knew nothing about evangelicals except what he read in the book. And he said to me, who are these people? I said, what? And he said, you know, the only bad reviews you're getting are in the evangelical press. Everyone else loves these books. And all the commentators are saying that this is one of the kindest uh, memoirs they've ever read crazy for God. Mm-hmm. Why, why do they think you're being mean? And I had to explain to him. I said, look, I come out of a cultic background. This is like a, someone who comes from a communist background, who was the daughter or the son of Joseph Stalin or Lenin. <laughs> 
saying I'm not a communist anymore. They don't hear anything you say after that. Right. Because now you're part of the enemy. Exactly. So I it's said, just... you got to understand the book itself is not the point. The point is I left the movement. And so I have to be torn down yeah. and they can't say they can't deal with anything in the book because that's right. that might inspire their journey out. So instead, yeah. you have to be denounced as mean or vile or something. Um, right. And that's why they're doing it. But my editor really didn't get it. He said, I don't know what book they're reviewing because he says, if anything, I thought it was too, too easy. On, you know, you, you were kind of going too far in, 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 in talking about the good side of your background, all the rest of it. So secular people don't get the evangelical thing. And right. that is that if you leave the movement, you're now an enemy, irrespective yeah. of what you've said or the truth of the thing. Yeah, and a lot culture. of secular people don't get that. Yeah, it's cancel culture to the max and cancel culture and, before it yeah, was such a before thing. it was a deal, right? Yeah. Um so I I thoroughly enjoyed reading why I am an atheist who believes in God. Um right. I I did a in fact it reminded me of a series I did, you know, I do teaching series. Sometimes they were from a book of the older New Testament, and sometimes yeah. they were a topical series. But I did one called The Secret Struggles of Skepticism about 10 or 12 years ago. Mm. And my thesis on that series was uh, skeptics have more faith than they like to admit. And believers have more doubts than they like to admit. And then I would tackle all the tough issues from sure. an evangelical perspective with sort of that thesis working in the background and kind of try to bring us together a little bit more, you know? Yeah. And, uh, and so when I was reading your, why I'm an atheist who believes in God, I'm just thinking if there's any honest skeptic out there, mm. atheist, agnostic, whatever, who reads this, they're going to find some spirituality that stirs them in this mm. book. And then if there's any believers out there that would read it, honestly, they're going to, they're going to identify with the doubts that you bring up. I mean, the tension points that you bring out in this book are, yeah. we all, they're human. They're, they're literally human, right? Mm. They, it's humanity who struggles with these things yeah. and trying to figure out this whole world that we live in. But I found it fascinating, your take on Jesus in mm. this book. I loved some of your, your commentary on Jesus in your book, Why I'm an Atheist Who Believes in God. Mm. And maybe you could comment on that just a little bit. Your view of Jesus in this book is uh, would you would you say Jesus like in, in today's world, uh, you know, I guess the evangelicals now wokeism is the evil now. Right. Sure. Yeah. And, you know, when I read Jesus, he's kind of woke, don't you think? I think so. Yeah. And I think that something actually I have a this is a weird place to start, but I'll just say a couple things about the book and then pull me back to the question you just asked. But I just want to set it up a little bit. You know, when I wrote my memoir, Crazy for God, I got a lot of uh, I thought I was going to get tons of hate mail from evangelicals. And I didn't. I got a lot of bad reviews from people who had to give it a bad review for Christianity Day magazine because I'm a threat. You know, Francis Schaeffer's walks, son walks away. So they had to sort of, you know, fix, take, knock the wheels off my wagon. But no, everybody else liked the book, like sort of like happened with Portofino. But then I, I started getting tons of letters. And, and in, this was the day when email was just coming in. People would find my email and I would get emails from evangelicals who were saying, you've told my story. Right. But 
they would ask a question at the end saying, but I was really surprised at the end of Crazy for God that you did not make a clear affirmation that you're a believer. You sort of are still spiritual, but I was disappointed you weren't you know, there. And then atheists would read it like Christopher Hitchens, who is a well-known new atheist writing books himself. And he said, I was disappointed at the end that you did not clearly endorse atheism as where you have gone. You know, why are you still dabbling in this hocus pocus spirituality and so forth? So <laughs> I literally began writing emails that were very similar to both, just changing a word here and there saying, look, yeah. you know, where I've come in my own life is to accept the fact that paradox and uncertainty is not a halfway point between faith and non-faith. It is actually the way things are. Yeah. Quantum physics is the same. Yeah. There are un it's not that there are unanswerable questions. And if you knew more, you would know the answer and you'd have a yeah. clean, neat system. Reality itself is not clean and neat. Yeah. In fact, to have absolute certainty, even in the area of physics, is very outdated because... Right. What they're doing, you know, with, with that, the cutting edge of physics or the cutting edge of philosophy or whatever, it's all the same thing. And that is the the question kind of is the answer. And that coming to a place of uncertainty and paradox is not a failure of faith or reason. It's actually the way things are. Yeah. So I'll give you an example. And I love that, by the way, real Frank. Question. <laughs> I'll give you an example that is that actually I've used in, in some discussions where I'm trying to make this point with people and they're saying, how can you be an atheist who believes in God? How can two opposites be the same thing? And I'll say, look, why do we use different rules when we talk about faith in God than we do in other parts of life? And they'll say, like what? Let's take the word love. I've, I've been in love with Jeannie now for 53 years. Love on some days after we've been fighting, which by the way, we do much less these days, but in the stressful part of our marriage, say 20 years ago, Love in some days meant that I hated her less than I would otherwise. That yeah. sounds awful. Yeah. But on some days, <laughs> if you love people, love means you hate them less than you would otherwise that day. And that's love too, in terms of that's why in the end you come back and you reconcile and do things. Mm -hmm. Faith is the same thing. So when you say you're an atheist who believes in God, um, and someone says, well, you know, what, what do you mean by that? I would say two things. First of all, I accept paradox as the actual way things are. In other words, it's not a midpoint between certainty and uncertainty. Second, um, there are days when I am more atheistic and more, and other days when I'm more spiritual. Mm -hmm. And it isn't that I'm vacillating between two positions, waiting to hear an argument that settles everything, because mm -hmm. there is yeah. And it's not that I'm even an agnostic. Agnostic's the wrong word because that's another settled position that somehow mm -hmm. that's so you're just there. No, I actually embrace paradox and, and go back and forth. Okay, so when yeah. it gets to the person of Jesus, so see, I did remember the rest of the question. There we go. And your two big comments that I'm yeah. thinking about in particular are his radical inclusive nature, right? Right. right. That, that, that be the, being the biggest one, I think, that you brought out over and over again. Yeah. Um, yeah. But, and, you know, and that I he wasn't to, a fundamentalist. Yeah. If <laughs> the, I had to write that interpreted the Torah. <laughs> right. If I but if I was writing uh, why I'm an atheist who believes in God now, I'd have a, a, one more little chapter in there or at least a section of some chapter that would say all the things you've just said about inclusiveness and who Jesus really was and so forth and so on. 
I would say two things. First of all, we don't really know anything about Jesus, which is disconcerting because it's all written down by other people. So you, if you're really honest when you talk about Jesus, or by the way, any other historical figure, you say, as far as what was written about Jesus, we know. Whereas evangelical preachers are always saying, Jesus said, well, we don't really know, or God said. No, you know what is said in this book that was written about this person. It's it's removed. But let's just take it on the face of it, that the New Testament account of Jesus is accurate. Mm -hmm. Well, then we can definitely say Jesus was woke and Jesus was very forgiving. And Jesus was totally out of the temper of his own judgmental times with the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And if Jesus was around today, and this is not in any way an extrapolation to try to make a political point, he would be of the left. He would be denounced as a socialist. He would be hated by the white evangelical voter who backs Trump and MAGA. He would not think that it was a good idea to have AR-15s everywhere uh, to defend yourself. And really, you have to abandon the whole person of Christ. Um, if you say you believe in him, you literally have to abandon him and work against the teaching of Jesus to be on what I would call the far Christian nationalist right. Th this is the opposite of what Jesus is. But then the, what I would add if I was writing about it now is something that's been very interesting to me in the last seven or eight years working on some other projects reading a lot of um, evolutionary history and evolutionary psychology for fall in love, have children stay put, save the planet, but also some further writing I'm doing on family dynamics and structure and all the rest of it is that the reason what Jesus says makes so much sense and so much more sense, say, than the far right or the far left for that matter, it's a whole different way of looking at things, a non-political human interest, have mercy and forgiveness way the reason it resonates has nothing to do with him either being the son of God or not being the son of God. Um, it resonates for a completely different reason. And this is something I didn't put in the book, but I'm adding as it were now. If you study evolutionary psychology and in terms of how we ever evolved in terms of survival mechanisms, the reason what Jesus says resonates is that what he said is true about human relationships and how you have a civil society and how you treat people is the basic survival mechanism of evolution that has been redefined in the last 20 years of research is not the survival of the fittest. There's a whole other terminology and a lot of books written on this. It's the survival of the friendliest. Mm -hmm. And so the reason Jesus is still cool and relevant is because actually we are now finding out that his view of life was truer than anybody ever thought on the basis of what we evolved to be, what resonates most deeply with us, which is yeah. human connection, and what actually is the basis of all our survival. And mm -hmm. I'll give you an example right now. You and me are only talking here because somewhere in our evolutionary history, some great ancestor of ours or a stranger behaved in a Christ-like way before there was writing or even language because there was a baby left by a trail abandoned because their mother had been killed by a wild animal or marauding tribes or somewhat, some other tragedy had befallen. Someone picked that child up. They didn't eat it. They didn't enslave it. They raised it, cared for that child and loved it. That's in every history of every human being on earth. That happens somewhere in our ancestry. Mm -hmm. We know that. And we know that the only reason we're here is because an extrapolation of family was was community the extrapolation of community was culture and that all happened before there was even writing let alone religion mm -hmm. 
We're talking tens of thousands of years ago. So if you read, for instance, this incredible book that I've been reading, um, probably the most important book I've read for myself in years by Elizabeth Marshall Thomas, whose parents, he founded Raytheon, her dad did, took time off with their family. They went to Africa, to the Kalahari Desert, and they lived with the nomadic tribe people of what was called the Bushmen later in the 1950s and studied what was then the oldest surviving unbroken culture in the world that most people rated as having been there and listened to this for 80,000 years, 80. Mm. This is before language, before religion, whatever. Mm -hmm. How had they survived that long? Because women had rights. The strong did not dictate the hunter did not distribute the meat, but the person who had made the arrow, which was usually an elderly woman, they had a, a whole bunch of social structures that you're saying, hey, these people never heard of Jesus. They can't read and write. The reason they've been successful as these nomadic hunter gatherers for 80,000 years and survived is because their idea of culture and family unit, literally, if you took the message of Jesus in the Gospels, this is how they've been treating each other. They weren't perfect, but they did not have all the problems of modernity. Well, you get into the modern age and Jesus comes in and says, look, basically one simple message. If you you want to survive, you want to have you want to have families and communities that work. Well, here's how you better take care of each other. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, it won't work. Yeah. So what was a crazy reason Elizabeth Mar- Marshall Thomas's book, and she's not by any means a Christian. In fact, she's an atheist and says so at, at another book of hers I read, was this anthropological, sociological study of these people. You're basically looking at it and saying, wow, you know, modernity is devolved because we don't treat people this way. But everything Jesus was saying is borne out by what, evolution has taught the human race, not as moral, but as an absolute necessity if you want to survive. So, of course, it resonates more than other religious teachings. Mm. Uh, Of course, it's anti-imperial and anti-misogyny and and uh, pro-human care for one another. And, 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 And so, you know, I think to not embrace the teaching of Jesus as normative has nothing to do with religion. It has to do with the fact that you're just an idiot at that point, because <laughs> if, 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 if you reject the idea of turning the other cheek and forgiving and caring and being, yeah. you haven't rejected Jesus. You've rejected everything evolutionary evolution has taught yeah. us as a species about how to survive. Right. So, when you say someone's doing something wrong, you can say two things. You can say, oh, well, it's not Christ-like. But there's an even deeper argument that goes back into our, our far past before yeah. Jesus, before religion. And that is, what has evolution taught us? Yeah. And the old idea that it was about survival of the fittest and sharp elbows and Ayn Rand, you know, Ayn Rand and the greys, you know, bish, bish, you know, go forward and break things, move fast and break things. That's all old-fashioned bullshit all the modern neuropsychology is in a completely different camp now, and it sounds like Jesus wrote it. And yeah. so that's that. I would have added that yeah, yeah. in that book. But other than that, you know, I pretty yeah. much am where I was when I wrote what I'm an atheist. I think the, the survival. So let's jump to your newest book here because we only got about a few minutes left here. But um, your newest book, Fall in Love, Have Children, Stay Put, Save the Planet, Be Happy. Right. Um, you give a critique of several different things in right. this, in this book. And let me, let me finish my comment and then, then I'll turn it over to you, but it, you definitely are critiquing capitalism. 
capitalism run, run riot. Right. Right. Um, and by, by the way, one of the things that probably helped soften my evangelical life was when I was in seminary at a Southern Baptist seminary, I had a professor, a history professor who was one of the top Anabaptist historians in the world, hmm. William Eastup. And he wrote the Anabaptist story and he wrote, he actually translated the Schleitheim confessions of the Anabaptists. And, you know, in the reform world, when everybody was killing each other over yeah. doctrine and, and politics, um, the Anabaptists were the nonviolent pacifists sure. that the yeah. Mennonites and the Amish have flown out of and the, even Quakers to some extent, you know, yeah. and they were these beautiful people that, wouldn't take up arms that, that followed Jesus, even love your enemy kind of stuff and yeah. really tried to live out a life of, of love God, love your neighbor and love your enemy yeah. even, and were nonviolent. And I always, I imbibed that. And so always had this leaning, you know, I was reading John Howard Yoder's politics of Jesus, which if you sure. read that, you'd, you'd find a woke Jesus, <laughs> but I mean, I think it's an accurate reading of, Jesus, uh, John Dominic Crossan, who's one of the you know famous Jesus seminar guys, he he thinks yeah. that Jesus is the first nonviolent civil disobedient guy that he can find in history. Yes, yeah, and the beautiful uh, take on some of his take on Jesus for, mm. is really fascinating. But anyway, that that sort of saved me. And then if you look at you know like if you just look at Jubilee itself, yes. like the history of Jubilee. You got to be some kind of socialist, you know, and I was always I had this mixture of, you know, probably just independent. But, you know, always I was never anti-socialist because yeah. it seemed like I always wanted universal health care and I always yeah. wanted to care for the immigrant and the refugee and the poor. And, the you know, there were platforms that didn't fit my Republican Party that I was a yeah. and I was a member of, you know. But at any rate, nonetheless, say your last book, um, you're critiquing capitalism, you're critiquing evangelical fundal, fundamentalism, particularly patriarchy and Christian nationalism. Mm. And you're even critiquing some of these older views of evolutionary psychology, right? Yeah. And, and um, those are some of the big critiques that you do. Mm. So I can imagine people reading this, which I would recommend them to do, and then maybe fussing with your critique of capitalism, evangelical fund, sure. you know, fundamentalism, patriarchy, Christian nationalism, or evolution. But I can't imagine hardly anybody fussing with with the out with the uh, direction that you want to see the planet go in, mm. that you want to see humanity go in, like loving. Yeah. I th the thing I've been captured by you about in all your writings is how you've built a call it a spirituality of relational love. Mm -hmm. Like it seems like that's you always come back to the eyes of your children and your grandchildren and mm -hmm. seeing the world through them yeah. and how that the mystery and the paradox and the, mm -hmm. uh, the mystery of love, the paradox of love in mm -hmm. actual human relationships. Yeah. If there is anything else out there besides <laughs> naturalism, yeah, this is where it comes in at is this love, the magic of love, the spirituality yeah. of love, the mystery of love. And mm -hmm. so what you recommend in this book through all your critiques is such a beautiful approach to love mm. and, and relationship and that, and, and there's a spirituality to that. There's a mystery to that. Sure. There's a paradox to that, that I found uh, 
like, holy, I just love that. I love mm. that because it's yeah. so rooted in, in what's real and what can't be analyzed by mm. science all the time. Right. Yeah. And, you know? and certainly doesn't reflect our culture. You know, one of the big points I'm making in, in this book, fall in love, have children, stay put, save the planet, be happy is that, um, our culture has completely gone in the wrong direction of uh, anti-family values is where we are. If you designed a nation that really hates children and married couples and falling in love and procreation and education, this is it. You know, we don't even give paid family leave to men and women uh, as, as every other developed country in the world does. And then we bemoan the fact that, you know, we're falling be below replacement numbers and we're going to have to have all this immigration or there'll be nobody left to run our our manufacturing and so on. And at a certain point, I just get sick of it. And I wrote this book just saying, look, you have to decide what your priorities are. And if your priorities are the quality of your relationships and the love in your life, these are going to be more important to you than career, which isn't going to suit some people who come out of, for instance, some parts of the feminist movement. Um, if you really put relationships first, you are not going to be 100% capitalistic and the gross national product is not the most important thing in our lives. If you put people first, then your job title is not the mirror you look in. It is the eyes of those who know you best, love you, either trust or distrust you. That's where you see the truth about yourself written. It isn't whether you're a billionaire or the head of a corporation or break the glass ceiling. It is what the people closest to you in your life really know about you and how they react to you. So what's interesting to me is I think a lot of paths come together in this book. You know, there's the evolutionary psychology path of how does one survive as a human being? It isn't by getting the highest pay or the biggest job. That's fine if you happen to wind up there, but that's not how we survive. It's the quality of our relationships, the love in our lives. Every single psychologist agrees with that. They everybody is into relationship quality as what determines how your day goes. And I don't just mean married or bonded or gay or straight. I'm talking about all of it, how we relate mm -hmm. to our employees, how we relate to other people, the people we love in our lives, the people who work for us, the people we work for. It's all about this. And that's more and more where everybody is understanding. So isn't it interesting that neuropsychology, evolutionary biology, the teachings of Jesus, family values, the quality of our relationship with children all becomes one story, but it's not the story of modern America mm -hmm. that doesn't have paid family leave that still puts career. We ask kids, what are you going to be when you grow up? Not who are you going to be? Mm -hmm. What are you going to be? As mm -hmm. if career is the be all and end all of life. It isn't. Yeah. And what's interesting is post COVID. And when I rewrote the book, fall in love, have children, et cetera, after COVID hit, I spent another year working on it because it was very weird. It was as if there was some supernatural intervention that said, hey, Frank Schaefer's calling for us to put other things ahead of career. And, <laughs> you know, the gods struck and everybody went home for a year and figured it out. And now we have hundreds of thousands of people who are saying, I'm going to keep working from home. We have all sorts of people who took another look at their values of putting career mm -hmm. ahead of, say, their yep. children. So, What's interesting is the actual direction of our culture by default, because these things I'm critiquing really aren't working well. Putting yeah. career ahead of relationships right. hasn't worked out well. Um, all these kids on medications, all these self-harming people, they're growing up in a culture which has all their priorities wrong. And if 
you know, if your younger people are in such terrible trouble, if this isn't an indictment of the society in which they find themselves, then I don't know what is. That's what my book's about. But I just want to reiterate again that if you were an evangelical Christian trying to share the love of Jesus, a neuropsychologist trying to share the latest research on survival of the friendliest, you'd be telling the same story. Yeah. Yeah. And it's not about dog eat dog, American capitalism, define yourself by career or your paycheck. That's not it. Everybody knows that. And so I don't think that I'm saying anything new. I don't think I'm saying anything original. In fact, I think if you read uh, Thomas, if you read Thomas's book, Elizabeth Marshall Thomas, you're going to find that the oldest survival methods of hunter gatherers, the only reason they stuck around for 80,000 years in the Kalahari Desert is because evolution itself forced them to put these values first or they'd all be dead sharing. Let me jump in, Frank, because this, this this is, this is the, this is the basic survival method of the human race. And that's all I've been talking about. Well, I told you, I'd, I'd be very mindful of a hard deadline that you have. And so I'm going to try to be true to that here. We've just got a few seconds left. Okay. Sure. But I want to, I would love to encourage all my evangelical pastor friends to read these books. (laughs) I think they would learn even if they didn't agree with everything. Um, And, and I love, uh, love your writing style. Um, And uh, you have a great podcast as well. A conversation with Frank Schaefer. I want to plug that. What do you have a website as well that people? Yeah. I mean, in conversation with Frank Schaefer and if they go to Facebook and find me and like that, then they'll get a steady stream of everything. Uh, Videos are posted there. So really, you know, the books are all on Amazon. Um, Why I'm an atheist who believes in God, fall in love, have children. It's all on Amazon. My novel Portofino is on Amazon or in bookstores. Uh, The podcast is just in conversation with Frank Schaefer. It's everywhere. Podcasts are YouTube and all the podcast platforms. And then, I would just say, encourage people to like my Facebook page and go there because anything coming down the pike will be there. And I am not someone that is unreachable. Uh, my email address is what it's always been for for those I want to talk to. It's just Frank A. Schaefer at AOL.com. Put on the subject line where you heard me here on this podcast and I will answer you unless there's too many expletives calling me bad names in the the (laughs) subject line, then I might Uh, give it a pass. Uh, But other than that, that, you'll get an answer. Yeah. And um, this will come out in a week or two, but uh, we're actually recording this on uh, November 22nd, just a few days after the, uh, the uh, murders of some gay folks in uh, Colorado Springs. And you just released a little, five minute comment on that on your podcast yesterday and YouTube channel. I'd encourage people to listen to that as well. So Frank, God bless you. Thank you so much for doing. Hey, uh, it's really been a pleasure. You know, you're supposed to always say it's been a pleasure, but this actually has been. Well, thank you so much. And uh, I look forward to staying connected in the future as well. Yeah, me too. And anytime, and, you know, and, and, and listen, let me thank you for being so well prepared, but also just really reading some of my books. I mean, you know, uh, and Portofino in particular is still the book. I got the most pleasure from writing and rereading once in a while, most recently out loud to some of my grandchildren who re- who enjoy it very much. So yeah. thanks for diving into all that. You bet. I, it was a joy. Thanks, everybody, for tuning in to Spirituality Adventures, and we will see you next time. This concludes today's episode. Thanks for tuning in and listening. Remember, if you're watching on YouTube, subscribe to my YouTube channel. 
Remember to like, share, or subscribe to the social media platform that you're using. And then go to our website, spiritualityadventures.com, and make a one-time donation, or you can subscribe monthly and receive our special bonus content. Thanks so much.